Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.50 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. No, no, it's not, is it? No, why? Because like the idiots that we are, we're still holding on to this concept of daylight savings time. Uh, it just it just rankles me. It just does. I can't stand it. So now it is 9.50 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Again, again. I think we spend eight months in this shit. And we get four months of what it used to be way back in the day. But I digress. This is episode, what the hell episode number is this? I can't even remember. It is 686, 686 episodes of Bitcoin and... Object to the test! Good. Do you feel it? No. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I don't feel it either. Why? Well, because people continue to be stupid. And that's just, I'm not actually pointing any fingers at a particular thing right now as to people being stupid. It's just that we have yet to see the stupidity. We do. We, we really have yet to see the ultimate stupid. And what I'm, I'm literally talking about, yes, Bitcoin is up by what, 30% over the last five days before this brand new 2000, you know, 2008 called it once it's, you know, bullshit back and no, no, we got it covered in 2023, don't we? Yes, that's stupid. I, I understand that we've been, I'm not the only one that said that this shit has happened before and it's going to happen again. And it's happening again. We've got contagion all over the place. I called that one out and just, yes, that's stupid. It looks like Bitcoin's reacting the way that we think it should react, a safe haven in these troubled times that we see. But people are stupid. And you got to understand that if you expect Bitcoin to rise to a million dollars in 90 days, I think you you need to go see a doctor or something. Okay? You know me. I love Bitcoin, but I'm also a realist. You get that kind of acceleration in Bitcoin. You've got cities burning down because even if the cities themselves are populated by people that have no Bitcoin whatsoever, because the inflow of capital into Bitcoin that would cause such a rise would mean that regular folks out there that know jack about Bitcoin at all are getting wiped out so fast that they automatically, they could feed their kids one day and the next day they can't. Now you put a couple of million people, you know, a couple of handfuls of, you know, tens of millions of people together that are experiencing that, you've got problems. Yes, we'll talk about the Balaji Srinvinson, however you pronounce his last name. We'll talk about that bet later. But I just want to be clear that if you're just, 
if you're just thinking that this is it, that this is when it's going to happen, and you don't expect Bitcoin to go back down to 23,000, because that is a very real possibility, gut feeling, not technical analyst thing, no chart, chartalist action going on over here, because I don't do that stuff. It's a simple gut feeling. I absolutely expect something really stupid to happen as far as people's perception of Bitcoin goes. I do not expect Bitcoin to hit a million dollars in 90 days, all right? Hyperinflation, probably not this quarter, probably not next quarter. There's all manner of sequestration and squelching techniques that the Fed and the Treasury and central banks around the world will have. They will not be able to fix what's going on. Let's be clear about that. They cannot fix it. I'm pretty sure that this is the end of the road for kicking the can, but they got a few more inches before they hit the cliff. That few more inches could actually take another five, 10 years. I don't expect it to take that long. Something's going to give. Uh, we are on the precipice. What, any recommendations that I have? Yeah, buy, buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin in your own keys, do self-custody. If you don't know how to do it yet, perfect time to learn. It doesn't actually take as long as you think, I promise. There are, I, there are many outlets of, you know, that you can go to. You can still go to Bluebird's site. I'm on Noster. If you need to reach out to people for help, you, BTC Sessions loves to help people. He'll get you started. Matt O'Dell probably doesn't have time to do it, but he will fucking throw you a lifeline and, and give you to somebody who can. And if, if he doesn't help you himself, there are plenty of people that are willing to help. Not just me. You don't have to just like hit me up. Okay. There are plenty of people that absolutely will get you started on the road to self-custody. And if you don't want to do any of that, call Unchained Capital. Seriously, get on the phone, call Unchained Capital and say, hey, I got, I got Bitcoin, it's all on Coinbase, I need to get it off, I need to get into self-custody. You'll pay for it because it's a service and they've got to feed their kids too, but they will, they will set you up and you will not have to worry about this crap anymore. Okay, so let's get into, let's get into today's show. <clears throat> now, the first thing that I want to do <clears throat> is visit, I need to visit Janet Yellen's statement in Congress, because it's really, it's just eye-watering. And it's, the, he's, she's being kind of questioned, well, not kind of, she's being directly challenged by, I can't remember the guy's name right now. He's from Oklahoma and he's worried about his community banks. And let me just, let's just let him ask the question himself. Will the deposits in every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of their size, be fully insured now? Are they fully recovered? Every bank, every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of the size of the deposit, will they get the same treatment that SVBP just got or Signature Bank just got? A bank only gets that treatment if a majority of the FDIC board, a supermajority, a supermajority of the Fed board and I, in consultation with the president, determine that the failure to protect uninsured depositors 
would create systemic risk and significant economic and financial consequences. So what is and your we plan? Make that determination. Right. right. So, so what is your banks. plan to keep large depositors from moving their funds out of community banks into the big banks? We have seen the mergers of banks over the past decade. I'm concerned you're about to accelerate that by encouraging anyone who has a large deposit in a community bank to say, we're not going to make you whole. But if you go to one of our preferred banks, we will make you whole at that point. Um, look, I mean, we're, that's certainly not something that we're encouraging. That is happening right now. That is happening because depositors are concerned about the bank failures that have happened and whether or not other banks could also um, no, it, it, fail. No, it's happening and because it's, you're fully insured no matter what the amount is. If you're in a big bank, you're not fully insured if you're in a community bank. Well, you're not fully insured. And you, you big, were at Signature, the, and the it, big, was, it just barely met that threshold. You were at Signature. Well, we felt that there was a serious risk of contagion that could have brought down and triggered runs on many banks, um, and that something, given that our judgment is that the banking system overall is safe and sound, um, depositors should have confidence in the system and we took these actions. So there's a special assessment that's been done on community banks in my state and all banks across the country. Was there any discussion that that special assessment would only apply to the larger banks, or was it always assumed the special assessment would cover every bank, including rural banks in my state? Um, I, I think I, I'm not certain what the rules are around that. Um, that that's for the FDIC to determine. It, it, it has been reported publicly that uh, SVB had a large number of Chinese investors that are there, including some that were companies directly connected to the Chinese Communist Party. It, will, will, those will those individuals, companies, entities, and investors that are Chinese investors be made whole based on assessments in my banks in Oklahoma? So what I'm asking is, will my banks in Oklahoma pay a special assessment to be able to make Chinese investors whole from Silicon Valley Bank? Uninsured investors will be made whole in that bank, and I suppose that could include foreign, foreign depositors, but I don't believe there's any legal basis to discriminate among uninsured I get it, but I, I'm just saying my community banks are going to pay this additional fee. It is always fascinating to me as well, the conversation that taxpayers are being made whole in this, that taxpayers are not going to have any kind of consequence on this. I'm sure my bankers are going to be very excited to know they no longer pay taxes. Yeah, I'd be excited about not having to pay taxes too. Hell. Now, that was a long clip, but it's there's a lot to unpack there. And we're going to unpack some of it, but I highly recommend that you listen to this thing two or three times before we before we go on. There it's frightening what she's saying. And so let, let's get into it. So the overriding question is, will community and other banks in Oklahoma, regardless of their size or size of deposit, be fully insured just like the rest of these other guys have? And you saw her waffle. 
try to skirt around the issue. You heard it, not saw her because I don't, don't do video, but you, you heard her. You heard it in her voice. Humans have this innate intelligence and in being able to suss out the condition of one's mind by the tones and inflections of voice and body language. That's why I hate communicating over text only. It has its place, but it is not a way to hold a conversation because you have exactly 10% of the information you need as a human to be able to derive the thoughts, feelings, and whatnot that another human being is saying to you. If you think for any second of your life that you can be part of an organization through Discord only or Slack only, you are missing 90% of the actual information that's trying to be imparted to you. Ask me how I know. It's impossible. You have to hear their voice. So she comes back with this. <clears throat> Only a supermajority of the Fed board, a supermajority of the FDIC, and the Treasury Secretary, her, in consultation with the President of the United States, says that they will be made whole. Okay, that doesn't tell me anything. You think it does, but it doesn't. Because here's my question. You know, the, the Fed, the FDIC, and Yellen in consultation with the president. These guys are the people that make the decisions. So how does that work? Do Yellen and the president get to override the FDIC and the Fed? Does the Fed get to override the FDIC and uh, Yellen's consultation with the president? How does this work? She didn't tell me anything. She just said that there's three groups that meet. I, 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 who has, who has the ultimate, does anybody have veto power? Do you know? I don't know. If you do know, then send me a boostagram and let me know all about it because I'm interested because she sure as shit didn't say anything substantive there. And why he didn't push back, I have no idea. I don't know. But the, the notion of moving funds from regional small banks to super massive banks that was one of his other questions. He's like, you know, what does this look like? And she's basically saying that the preferred banks will make you whole. So if you're not at a preferred bank, uh, I don't know, go pound sand. <laughs> oh God, you know, it's when she comes to this one, depositors should have confidence in the banking system. That, together with what she said about the FDIC, the Fed, and her consultation with the president, and the whole preferred banks, you know, preferred in quotes, I keep doing air quotes, you can't see that, preferred banks will make you whole. Basically, I, my problem here is that she's just giving carte blanche to America's big four banks on depositors' property. Because if, now there's, the, the theory is, that all the regional banks will get depleted of their funds because all the depositors will move over to great big banks. Okay, That's, that is a very real possibility. There's also pushback on that theory that says that that won't actually happen. But the problem is, is that when you set up and say, tell people that the preferred banks will make you whole, and then you realize that you need to ask the question, is my bank a preferred bank? And you come to the conclusion that it's not. 
uh, there you go. If you're over $250,000 in FDIC, you know, the FDIC limit is they'll make you whole at $250,000 as long as your bank is a, you know, has licensure from the FDIC is an FDIC accredited bank. What we are seeing is that people are scrambling to open new bank accounts so that they can spread their wealth around. And, you know, my family, that's just a common practice, you know, for the, for the family companies, because there's, you know, more than $250,000 in cash chilling out. I know you should convert it to Bitcoin. I'm a third partner. (laughs) I'm a third partner. I can't just like call up people and say, oh, raise the alarm flags. We all got to get, we got to get into Bitcoin because they're going to say, no, I'm going to be overridden. And that's okay. I mean, it probably, you know, I know you're saying it's not okay, but when you're part of a partner in a family business, you got to keep the peace. Okay. I got to go with it. I just got to go with it. So at least there's that though. That's been a common family, you know, a family business practice since my, before my dad died was to make damn sure that if you've got a bank account of over $250,000, you need to get the rest of that money and put it into another bank account at another bank. You can't do this at the same bank, right? But fear is itself a contagion. And if this actually occurs where regional and community and smaller banks see this outflow of cash into Bank of America, Wells Fargo, you know, the preferred banks, which is basically the big four, or let's call it big five, they're going to basically get all the money. They're going to get all the money. That is a centralization nightmare in the making. And nobody needs this shit to happen. Am I saying to wait it out in your regional bank? I'm not going to tell you what to do. Either way, I'm just not. You need to figure that one out for yourself because I don't want to get anybody in trouble right? I could like, I could tell you, yeah, move your shit into Wells Fargo or whatever and be absolutely horrendously wrong. Please do not listen to me. Okay. I'm just telling you the facts. I'm telling you my feelings and the facts, but you need to make your own decisions about what you need to do with that. But (laughs) what do I got here? I have bank depositors here are not retail. She's talking about massive depositors that are sophisticated, institutional and such. That's my problem is that, you know, the, the quote unquote sophisticated people in, you know, in finance and whatnot like that, the bigger depositors of these banks, they kind of know what to do. It's the retail portion that kind of concerns me because that's where fear spreads like contagion, like a, like a virus beyond your wildest imaginings. It's not really as much the guys at the top. You know, I mean, it's just the way it is, but I just, the tone of her voice is basically telling me, screw the regional banks, screw your community bank. And even, oh, uh, was it Kevin O'Leary said that we don't need regional banks anymore. Yeah, you do. You do. You, you really do. You don't want you don't want this centralization of the majority of Americans' personal financial capital locked up in five freaking banks. This is a terrible, terrible thing to have happen. So my takeaway is that it sounds to me like Yellen is telling the American public that only big banks are safe. 
Now here's the kicker at the very last, sort of getting into the very last. He asks, will Chinese investors, and he, when he means Chinese investors, he means Chinese national retail or Chinese nationals at the retail and institutional level, will they be made whole? Chinese nationals is important here because they don't live in the United States or they don't have residency and they don't have a U.S. passport. They are not Americans. They're using the American financial system to hold their shit, right? So his question is, will they be made whole off of the backs of the United States bank depositor? That's you and me. And she says, yes, the Chinese will be made whole off of the backs of United States depositors. And that's you and me. It's frightening to listen to that. It's absolutely terrifying to listen to that. I'm not freaking out because I hold Bitcoin in cold storage. That's the only reason I'm not completely freaking out. And I, I think, I mean, I continuously buy Bitcoin. I actually think that I have enough. I think, of course, you know, the pushback will be, you never have enough Bitcoin. Yeah, well, I get the trope. I get the meme and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, guys, there is a point when I can do the math and look at how many billionaires and millionaires there are in the world. And if every single one of them wanted to buy even a, you know, a half of a Bitcoin, there's just not enough to go around. I do think that I actually have enough, but I'm going to always continue to DCA into Bitcoin. That's daily cost average, whether it's daily or weekly. We just use the term daily cost average. I buy once a week, same time, same day, every single week. The only time that I stopped doing that was when Bitcoin passed $3,600 a coin. And for some dumbass reason, I thought that, I don't know, I was a newbie. I got scared. I was like, yeah, there's no way this is sustainable. And of course it goes all the shoots all the way past to $20,000. I was not buying Bitcoin on a weekly basis. Like I normally had started during that entire time from 3,600 to 20,000 and all the way, actually it got all the way back down to like 3,500 back at when the, when the bear market started fully in 2017 or 2018 right? It went way back down, way down. It was only after it leveled off that I was like, oh shit, I'm not DCAing. And I turned it back on every week since then without a hitch. And I'm never going to stop buying Bitcoin on a DCA situation. All right. So with that said, let's talk a little bit more about what the fallout of all this crap has been since uh, I didn't come to you all last week. I think the last show was a yeah, it was when, like last Wednesday or whatever. Uh, let's, let's get into this. <clears throat> CNBC.com. Uh, this is Jeff Cox. Title is Fed Other Central Banks Set Joint Liquidity Operation. The United States Federal Reserve collaborated, I love the word, with other global central banks to make sure dollars, U.S. dollars, are available to stem any liquidity concerns in the global financial system. The Fed on Sunday said it had joined with the Central Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and the Swiss National Bank in a coordinated action to enhance the provision of liquidity through the standing U.S. dollar swap line arrangements. In doing so, the monetary authorities said 
the move would serve as an important liquidity backstop to ease strains in global funding markets, thereby helping to mitigate the effects of such strains on the supply of credit to households and businesses, end quote. The move came the same day that UBS announced that it was buying Credit Suisse to help shore up concerns about the global financial system. Yeah, pausing to say, if you didn't know, Credit Suisse fell over the weekend, was bought out by UBS, which was, has been their competitor for decades. Continuing on, Swiss authorities brokered the deal to prevent a disorderly collapse of the bank and concerns rise about financial turmoil on both sides of the Atlantic. Quote, to improve the swap lines, effectiveness in providing U.S. dollar funding, the central banks currently offering United States dollar operations have agreed, have agreed to increase the frequency of seven-day maturity operations from weekly to daily, the Fed said in a statement issued alongside announcements from the other five central banks. These are all central banks. Operations will commence on Monday, that's today, and will continue at least through the end of April. That's over a month. I mean, it's like March the 20th today, y'all. March the 20th, end of April. Jeez, the move comes just a few days ahead of the Fed's two-day meeting, after which it will announce its intentions on interest rates. Markets on Sunday evening were pricing in about a 74% chance of a quarter percentage point rate increase on Wednesday, according to the CME Group's Fed Watch gauge. The UBS Credit Suisse deal and swap lines maneuver probably raises the chance of a rate hike, said Krishna Guha, head of global policy and central bank strategy at Evercore ISI, quote, the implications for the Fed Wednesday are far from clear cut. In principle, the interventions clear the way for a cautious 25 uh, BPS hike, still our base case, but the FX swap flags United States global concerns and if we were to see a severe adverse reaction in European financials to the news, this could stop out a hike, Guha said in a client note. I think they're going to hike 25%. That's what I, or 25%, 25 bips. That's what I, I think that they're going to go ahead. You know, it's like, I, I think I might've mentioned it Monday. I definitely mentioned it to a couple of friends, you know, while I was just talking, saying that, um, you know, just, you know, watch. You, you know, everybody was like going, oh, there's no way they're going to, they can't, they can't hike now. Oh yes, they can. And they will. If they have, if there's any perception in the worldwide financial markets that Jerome Powell has lost control and says, well, we were planning it. We had a plan, brother. We, we got it. We got this plan. It's rock solid. We're going to save the financial institutions all across the world. And then he waffles on it. That's an expression of panic from Jerome Powell, who at this point, sad as it's, it is for me to say, is the most powerful person on the face of the planet today. He's going to do 25. He was probably going to do 50, but he's going to end up with a 25 point hike. And what's that going to do? It's going to break shit even further. But I think that Jerome thinks that he can fix it on the other side of this but he would not be able to stem the tide of panic. Should he say, you know what? Yeah, things are out of control and we're not going to do a, a, a rate hike. Now I could be completely wrong. I, I reserve the right to be absolutely wrong. But given what Jerome's been doing over the past you know, year, 
he's going to do 25 bips at least. He might actually do 50, but I, I don't know, man. I, my bet's on 25, like the report said. But it is going to break shit even further. Now, that Credit Suisse thing, let's talk about that just a little bit more. Coindesk, we've got an opinion piece by George Kalutis. Credit Suisse's buyout shows banks still have a banking problem. <laughs> no, really? It's time to add Credit Suisse to the list of bank failures that we've seen so far in 2023. Over the weekend, UBS agreed to buy Credit Suisse for what for what equates to about $3.25 billion of UBS stock, complete with the Swiss government helping absorb some of the coming write-downs of Credit Suisse's loan book. UBS had to step in to save CS after last Wednesday's 50 billion Swiss franc liquidity injection from the Swiss National Bank proved insufficient to buoy the bank's operations once the Saudi National Bank, Credit Suisse's largest shareholder, said that it would not provide any more assistance. All right, pausing. Yeah, again, frightening. Saudi National Bank is not go- was not going to help Credit Suisse, and the Saudis are the largest owner of Credit Suisse, and a $50 billion liquidity injection by the Swiss National Bank, because the Saudis wouldn't help, didn't work. They had way more liquidity issues than 50 billion. Are, are you kidding? This is, an ancient, this is a very old institution. Credit Suisse has been around for decades, ladies and gentlemen. And they didn't have enough money to go around. Let's continue. We've come full circle during the last financial crisis in 2008. It was UBS that was saved by the long arm of the Swiss government. This time, the government needed UBS to lend a helping hand. There are many financial systems and banking systems. Uh, It takes to be had here, but here's a crypto-focused one. Despite the lofty side quest to disrupt finance, it was not crypto that upended these banks, and it certainly didn't upend Credit Suisse. Bankers were so busy laughing at crypto's unraveling, they didn't realize their banks were also unraveling. Instead of failing because Bitcoin made banking services obsolete, Credit Suisse failed because it wasn't good at being a bank. Remember in 2021 when Credit Suisse took $5.5 billion of losses on loans in connection with Archegos? A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S. I don't know how to pronounce it. And remember how it was embroiled in enough fraud in 2014 that it had to pay $2.6 billion to the United States Department of Justice? Eh. Some other stuff happened, and then Credit Suisse was forced to sell itself to a competitor at a steep discount. All the while, Bitcoin's price is trending up as banks fail simply because they are being banks. (laughs) This is really the first time the narrative of Bitcoin as a way to opt out of unadvisable banking practices is playing out as we would have expected. Banks are failing because they are bad at being banks and the Bitcoin blockchain is completely separate from those failures. Bitcoin is on the outside looking in on the mess and offers itself as a genuine means to opt out. Banks don't have a crypto problem. Banks have a banking problem. And yeah, that's the end of the article. And he's absolutely correct. Except remember what I said at the top of the article, don't expect people to function rationally. 
you know, and all of a sudden you're, you're, you know, like if you bought it $63,000 per Bitcoin that you're going to be, you know, 100% in the black, you know, two weeks from now, it could happen. I I've seen Bitcoin pull some, some serious moves, but Bitcoin exists by itself and is basically unfazed as far as its transactional capacity, throughput, security, you know, the consensus rules. It, it's unaffected by the stupidity of humans. What's affected in Bitcoin by the stupidity of humans is our thought that somehow or another, one Bitcoin equals whatever price in some fiat currency. And why on earth would you do that? Why would you think that Bitcoin is worth what? What is it worth right now? Let's see. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Let me just get over here to Clark's dashboard and see. Uh, looks like, what is it? Come on. Come on. Where'd he go? $27,745. Why do we think one Bitcoin is worth $27,745? Which is now 700 and back to, it went up to 750 and now it's back down to 745. Why do you think that? Why do I think that? Why does anybody else think that? One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. That's an important meme. Because it's not Bitcoin that's failing, is it? Bitcoin stands as a monolith that's basically had everything thrown at it, including the kitchen sink, and it just, it just deflects everything. And somehow we think it's affected by its perceived price in some fiat currency. If you're thinking that way, start practicing meditation and meditate on the fact of, well, meditate on this uh, statement. Bitcoin does not have a price in fiat terms. Bitcoin has a perceived purchasing power, yet that is also termed in fiat. And both of those are incorrect. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. How many tractors can a Bitcoin buy you? Think about, you know, how many tractors there are on the face of the planet. How many will be generated next year? And then divide that number by 20, you know, divide that into 21 million. And, you know, that's how, how much a, how much it'll cost you in a Bitcoin. You can do that with land. You can do that with housing. You can do that with all kinds of stuff. And yet still through all of these, there's this notion that there's some kind of fiat price. What are we seeing with fiats around the world? They're fucking collapsing. They've been collapsing. Now the largest banking institutions and financial institutions on the face of the planet don't have enough money. Jerome Powell's going to have to print. They're just going to have to print. He's going to do 25 BPS in the next couple of days. Probably on They'll probably announce on Wednesday or whatever. I can't remember exactly when the day that they announce is. It's, I think it's after the meeting. So it's, I think it's like, you know, after uh, close of markets on Wednesday. I'm not sure about that. I'm just saying, dudes, Ladies and gentlemen, is stop pricing Bitcoin in fiat. Yes, it's I it, in a way it matters, but if you can stop thinking that way and start thinking in a different way, it will be a good exercise at minimum. And then at maximum, well, it like at medium, maybe it, like if you're a holder and you've got you're holding your own private keys, it'll make you relax a little bit more because people are freaking out. 
And I'm really sensitive to the fact that there are people that don't even know about Bitcoin. They've just heard the word. They don't know how it works. They don't know what it is. We haven't gotten to them yet. And those are the people that I am, you know, the most concerned about, or at least I feel the most sad about, because there's not much that we can do at this point. Again, I, while I recommend buying Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin, especially now, um, and if you're going to continue to price it in fiat terms, then you're going to be on, that's the roller coaster. That's the roller coaster. And I'm just saying, try to think about it differently. Use these times to practice meditating on Bitcoin in a different way. It's not about price. Term Bitcoin in acres of arable land. Term Bitcoin, like find out, go, go to Google. How many acres of arable land are there on the planet? Compare that number to how much Bitcoin there will ever be. Start looking at it from that standpoint and you'll start feeling a little bit better. But we've got other things to talk about. We've got, uh, oh yeah, a little side note about the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Bern Hobart had this tweet out that said, uh, in today's newsletter, Silicon Valley Bank was, based on the market value of their assets, technically insolvent last quarter and is now levered 185 to one. Oh boy. That's a 50-year-old bank. That's a 50-year-old bank, ladies and gentlemen. 185x leverage. It's hard to it's hard to explain what that means if you don't know what leverage is, but let's say let's say you loan me 10 bucks. And uh Oh, hello. No, let's say, let's say I get, I got 10 bucks, right? <clears throat> and I put it into a bank and the bank's assets are a hundred bucks total, right? I, I am still at one-to-one leverage because it's, I, they owe me 10 bucks. I gave them 10 bucks. It's, you know, $10 is $10. But then let's say, so there's 10 people. We each got 10 bucks. We're all one-to-one. The bank's not leveraged. But then one day they wake up and say, you know what? There's no capital reserve requirements. So we're going to lend $1.87 million of loans against this $100. (laughs) See what I mean? There's where the leverage comes in. So they're outstanding way more than they had in the bank. This number is, is, this is like Arthur Hayes BitMEX DGEN trading days when people were levering 100X on Bitcoin trades and, and shitcoin trades. Yeah, you don't want to be in this position. So or, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, also just a clown show. Now we come to Balaji and Balaji's $1 million bet or one BTC bet. Let's get into this one. This is just the tweet that he put out that caused everybody to freak out over the weekend. He says, and he's not replying to anybody. <laughs> well, he's actually applying. He's, he's quote tweeting uh, James Medlock. And who is James Medlock? I don't know who James Medlock is. And I can't even get to the thing because I'm on archive today, archive.today, just because I didn't know if Bellagio was going to delete this tweet because it's, it's kind of stupid. So here, here it is. He says, I, well, James Medlock says, I'll bet anyone $1 million 
that the United States does not enter hyperinflation. So I'm assuming he's a Keynesian economist of some note. Balaji quote tweets him and says this, I will take that bet. You buy one BTC, I will send 1 million USD. This is a 40 to one odds as one BTC is worth roughly around $26,000. The term is 90 days. <laughs> All we need is a mutually agreed custodian who will still be there to settle this in the event of a digital dollar devaluation. If someone knows how to do this with a smart contract, we can do it on chain so I can send USDC. Uh, if you won't do that, name a custodian. And I guess he's suggesting BitSignal because he's got hashtag BitSignal. I, I don't know what BitSignal is. I've never heard of it, of it before. So anyway, so that's the thing that everybody's talking about. This is the Balaji bet, right? And I, he was one of the head honchos over at Coinbase. He's a VC guy. He's a tech bro, man. I mean, he's like your standard tech bro. The bet is that in 90 days, the price of Bit, one Bitcoin will be $1 million. I don't think that's going to happen because if it did happen, we've got way more problems on our hands than anybody wants, no matter how much Bitcoin you have. I'm just saying that that doesn't, it doesn't even make sense as to how it would happen, much less the socio, the sociological impact that that would have would stem from the fact that people in the millions, the tens of millions are all of a sudden unable to feed their children or clothe their children or have be able to make rent or mortgage payment or car payment. What he's suggesting is such a massive liquidity injection into Bitcoin that all the liquidity being provided right now through money printing and people like the Swiss National Bank backstopping, you know, Credit Suisse for $50 billion. It's like it's all going to evaporate into Bitcoin. You know where it's going? Right now it's going into U.S. stocks. The stock market's on fire today. Well, I mean, you know, it's not bad. But given, given the news that, you know, that we've been getting over the last week, I fully expected to see this shit all in the red. You know what's in the red? Commodities. Except for gold and other metals, but oil, it's all down. Natural gas is down. It's, and, and the stock market's up. There, where do you put your cash if not in Bitcoin? Real estate right now is functionally illiquid. There, I mean, I'm trying to find houses for sale up here in the eastern part of Washington state, the western part, part of, Idaho, of Idaho state. Ain't hardly anything up for sale. And everything that is, is so high priced. They've been on the market for 327 days. That's, I'm serious, man. I'm not exaggerating. They have $445,000 houses on postage stamps of land with four bedrooms and two bathrooms that were built in like the late 90s or the, you know, 2010s. Not even good housing. They're not even structurally sound. This is, I mean, where are you going to put it? Okay, so we would put it into Bitcoin, right? Not going to put it, they're going to put it into stocks. We're already seeing it today. The, the liquidity that's being provided by the central banks is already flowing into everything but retail, which means me and you. I mean, I don't want them to cut me a check, 
but I'm saying that it's not being provided for payroll. It's not being, some people are getting, doing the right thing, but most of these, most of the liquidity is flowing into the stock market and other relatively ill, you know, lesser liquid assets. It's not flowing around the world. It's not being circular. It's literally being printed and then it's immediately being shoved into stuff like, I don't know, Exxon. I don't know. I know it's going into stocks and equities and stuff like that. It's not doing what you think it's supposed to do. It's evaporating. It's like when it rains, like a, a cloudburst on a hot summer day in Texas, where it just rains for a few minutes and you're like, oh, this is nice. And then after it stops, you look at the street and it's dry as a bone because that street was so hot that the minute that the water hit it, it evaporated. That's exactly what's going on here. And it's going to continue to go on. And people are going to see the stock market continue to rise and rise and rise and rise. And they're going to follow along with their money. Retail will, will get in way later. It's mine. This is the stupidity that I'm talking about. Never discount a massive amount of humans ability to be incredibly short-sighted, stupid, and dangerous. Like my dad said, don't work with stupid people because they will either get you hurt or killed and they will come out smelling just fine. But this Balaji bet, I don't know what Balaji's thinking. I did note, you know, put out a note on Noster that said, well, I don't know. I mean, after, especially after the Credit Suisse thing happened, I uh, put out a note that said, maybe Balaji knew something. Maybe it is going to a million. I ain't betting on it though. I am not, I am not taking that bet. Now let's do this one. How realistic is former Coinbase's CTO's $2 million Bitcoin wager on United States hyperinflation? So we're going to get Andre Bogansky's take on this Balaji bet. Okay. So Coinbase's former CTO, Balaji Srinivasan, I can't pronounce it, wagered on Friday that the price of Bitcoin will benefit from a rapid devaluing of the United States dollar in the next three months, skyrocketing to $1 million by June the 17th. Uh, Balaji entered a bet with two individuals that same day, ponying up $1 million with pseudonymous Twitter pundit James Medlock and another unnamed person. If Bitcoin fails to notch what would be historic gains, the two would receive $1 million in Circle's USDC stablecoin each. The bet is part of Balaji's view that the global economy is teetering on the edge of rapid change, which he dubbed hyper-Bitcoinization. He predicts the United States dollar will enter a point of rapid hyperinflation and the global economy then redenominates on Bitcoin as digital gold. In this scenario, the market capitalization of Bitcoin, already the largest token, would increase to, uh, to around $19.3 trillion from about $550 billion today, according to CoinGecko. For comparison, the value of the United States stock market was just over $40.5 trillion with a T by the end of last year, according to Siblis Research. Balaji's prediction comes amid a series of bank failures in the United States that's injected fear and uncertainty into financial markets. And even though Bitcoin's correlation to stock indices like the S&P 500 and NASDAQ remains significant, 
Some on Twitter are calling it the great decoupling given Bitcoin's recent surge past $28,000 as Wall Street wavers. The bold bet inspired lengthy Twitter threads from some of crypto Twitter's most prominent voices, including Bitcoin entrepreneur and educator Jimmy Song and venture capitalist Andy Cochran, who delved into how realistic the prediction could actually be. Referencing the performance of cryptocurrencies during the onset of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020, Cochran said that Bitcoin would need a catalyst more extreme than that to outdo the 547% rally seen from 2020 to 2022. Cochran posited that a collapse of the United States and Europe's banking systems would ultimately overshadow the potential value of Bitcoin as an asset, making bunkers or beans a better use of money than purchasing the world's largest cryptocurrency. Quote, simply put, stores of value or alternative assets do well. When we doubt the profitability of an economic system and not the existence of a system, he told Decrypt via a Twitter DM. If the system doesn't exist, we shift down the hierarchy of needs, placing value on necessity goods and not valuables, end quote. Cochran said that Balaji's wager is a bid for hope in the crypto market after the industry faced tough sledding as crypto winter set in last year, a time when prices plummeted and numerous crypto firms collapsed. He noted and noted that the digital assets industry lost a lot of the excitement and hope that brought people in. Yeah, well, welcome to Bitcoin, motherfucker. Quote, they are hungry to have that back, he said. It's just disappointing to see it fueled by an unrealistic bet in such a risky macro environment. Okay, he's kind of not wrong there. Other voices such as Song appeared supportive of ideas expressed in Balaji's bet. I'm having to say his first name because they keep using his last name. I can't pronounce it. Claiming Bitcoin could have some utility during an existential crisis for the financial system as it's known today. Quote, Bitcoin will play a crucial role in mitigating some of the catastrophic effects, he said. As a strictly limited currency, Bitcoin offers a much better store of value, dampening the impact of hyperinflation. And that's what Jimmy Song is saying. Jimmy goes on to say the following, quote, this would lead to increased prices as goods become less available. Many business models would struggle and factors that keep prices low, like delayed settlement and quick inventory movement would disappear. Despite the daunting situation, Bitcoin will play a crucial role in mitigating some of the catastrophic effects. As a strictly limited currency, Bitcoin offers a much better store of value, dampening the impact of hyperinflation, end quote. Bloomberg's Matt Levine chimed in on Saturday to ask what could be considered a straightforward question. If Balaji thinks Bitcoin will reach $1 million in 90 days, why would he use the money to make a bet about it as opposed to just buying Bitcoin? Agreed. That's a, that's a very good question. <laughs> Levine said in a subsequent tweet that Balaji's move could be an attempt to uh, manipulate the price of Bitcoin up based on the replies that he's received. Others expressed the idea that Balaji could have made the bet as a way to bring exposure to himself and Bitcoin, i.e. engagement farming. Yeah, Balaji's net worth is estimated to be around $150 million, according to Data Wallet. He had joined Coinbase after a company he co-founded called Earn.com was purchased by said Coinbase. Balaji worked at Coinbase for yeah, 14 months before leaving the exchange in May of 2019. 
Among the accomplishments listed in his LinkedIn profile, he was responsible for organizing the business and technical side of Circle's USDC stablecoin launch. Balaji is not the only person out there who has envisioned a million dollar price per Bitcoin. In January of last year, Kathy Wood's ARK Invest estimated that Bitcoin could exceed $30 million but by 2030, saying that the network is likely to scale as nation states adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. I, you know, I've gone back and forth on why Balaji did this thing in the first place myself. And I don't think it's engagement farming. You know, it's like I, I put out a note on Noster said, you know, this guy could sneeze on Twitter and he'd get, you know, 200 likes and 20 follows out of the deal. He doesn't have to do this for engagement farming. He can do anything he wants in farm engagement. He, he doesn't need engagement farming. So I, I'm discounting that as, as a reason for doing this. Manipulation of the price to the upside? I don't know. It seems like dangerous territory legally, certainly morally and ethically, to do such a thing. So I'm kind of discount that one. I don't totally ax it out. So I, I mean, I don't get it. Unless Balaji is a human being that looks at a stack of $150 million and say, I kind of got enough. I don't want a plane. I don't want 12 yachts. I don't want eight houses in the South of France. I'm good. I'm good with what I got. I can, you know, peel off a couple of million dollars off that stack and, and do some, some funky shit with it to prove a point. I think that that's it. I think Balaji thinks that he's got enough. And if he's right about this, he's going to have a shit ton more. Not because of the bet, but just because, I mean, he could still lose the bet. And then like, be, let's say that the price of Bitcoin hit a million dollars, 91 days on what, June the 18th, instead of the 17th, he'd still technically lose the bet. He's not going to give a shit because Bitcoin would be at a million dollars. Again, this is that fallacy of looking at Bitcoin in terms of fiat terms, because what's the purchasing power of a million dollars 90 days from now? We don't know. That's the answer. We don't know. The only thing that I do know is that one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin and it's time to run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities. We got you for futures and commodities here. Energy futures are all down except for gasoline, which is actually up. Now, this is going to sound weird because I didn't come, like, we haven't talked about this uh, since like, what, last Wednesday. So right now, West Texas Intermediate is only down by like half a point, yet its price per barrel is $66.43. This shit fell off a cliff. It looks like everything fell off a cliff. When? I don't know. As soon as this shit loads up and I can get to my five-day marker or a chart, I can tell you a little bit more about what's going on. Okay. At the close of the 14th of March, uh, oil or West Texas Intermediate was at like seven, it closed at $71.53. By midday of the next day on the 15th, it was down to $65. It closed it. It was closing at, it, at midday at $65.94 before recovering back to 68 it literally fell off a cliff and everything went with it. Ask yourself what happened at close of business on March the 14th and you'll have all the information you need to know for the rest of it because Brent North Sea is also down. 
0.38% to $72.69. Natural gas doing its thing. Biggest loser today, 3.85% to the downside, 2.24 dollars per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline up 0.11% to uh no, yeah, point yeah, point eleven percent. Uh $2.50 a gallon. So it looks like refining costs are just not going the looks like we're in that situation where refineries no matter what the price of oil are going to charge a premium to refine that shit. Who knows? Gold, however, up almost half a point, $1,981.90. Silver is up uh, two, no, three quarters of a point, $22.63. Platinum is up 1.53%. Copper up 1.72%. Palladium is up 1.76%. I don't think I, I haven't looked, but... Can you imagine what day they started all going up to get for gold to get up to 1982 bucks an ounce? Yeah, your guess is uh, your guess should be uh, the morning of March the 15th <laughs> or probably the end of close. If there was after hours trading, probably, you know, March the, the end of close, March 14th. Uh, agricultural futures are just plain mixed. Wheat losing 2%. Soybeans up 0.61%. Uh, it looks like the biggest winner today is chocolate up 1.97%. And then we've got the equity markets. Let's get into how this is where the money that I was talking about was evaporating the minute it hit the hot street. This is where it's going, or at least a good portion of it, because the Dow is up 1.15% to 32,441. S&P is up 0.82%. NASDAQ futures, or NASDAQ is basically moving sideways. S&P mini up over 2%. Does that make sense? Given the environment that we're in, if, if, like if, we, if there was no money printing, people would be selling this shit to get their hands on cash. But it's all up today. It's all up. Where's that money coming from? It's coming from Swiss National Bank, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the Central Bank or the European Central Bank, the Bank of Canada, those guys at the first of the show, I was reading you that statement. They're going to print, or they are printing money right now and it's all flowing into stocks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just saying, watch your ass, people. Watch your ass. $27,694 is the price of a single Bitcoin today. Yes, I know you're going, hey, but we're not supposed to rate it in fiat terms. It's part of the show that I've had for five years. I'm still going to do it. All right. Now, we've had only 364,000 BTC change hands in the last 24 hours uh, with 1.11 BTC being the average transaction value and 0.011 BTC as the median transaction value, that's just over $300. Block times low, nine minutes, 32 seconds. 0.19 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and just under 30 BTC taken in fees overall. In the last 24 hour period and with a 5.6% drop in hash rate, we are still mega protected with 327.29 exahashes per second. Dogecoin, however, is not doing well which means that all the shit coins in comparison to Bitcoin's price are not being the vehicles of choice 
to protect oneself in these trying times. Got Dogecoin down to 7.3 United States pennies. There is a five now a $537.8 billion market cap for Bitcoin. And that is 4.05% of gold's entire market cap. And now you can get 14 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,322,855.71 of. And 5,402 of them sons of bitches are chilling out in the Lightning Network valued at $150.2 million, being run over 16,300 nodes sporting 75,300 payment channels that we can see. And 67.3% of all this traffic is over the Tor Network's 11,564 nodes, or at least the ones that we know about. There are 68 blocks waiting. Oh, sorry. Oh, hold on. There are 22,000. Okay, Tor nodes 11,564. We have 22,777 transactions waiting on 68 blocks to clear. Clark Moody is saying that you need four Satoshis uh, per V-byte as a minimum fee rate. Uh, We have a 5.9% estimated difficulty change to happen March the 23rd of this year. That's going to do it for the weather report. Because I missed the entire week, or I mean, I didn't miss it. I knew what was going on in this whole banking thing, but I didn't bring it to either, you know, any of you guys, because I was up in Seattle with the family having a good time. And we did have a good time, even though Seattle is, you know, it's a a cesspool of really bad policies and politics. The town itself is actually a lot of fun. Great restaurants, lots of shit to see. You know, if you get a chance to go, go. Go. There's no reason not to go just just because you completely disagree with the politics of a city doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the city's, you know, a city's amenities every once in a while. I highly recommend not living there though. Anyway, let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank. Maybe Prescient Jaw from Cointelegraph will tell us a few more details about what we know so far. Oh, by the way, <clears throat> title is called Silicon Valley Bank's Downfall Has Many Causes but crypto isn't one of them. Silicon Valley Bank boasted over $200 billion in assets and was a lifeline for crypto companies. Notably, it was one of the few institutions offering services to crypto companies in the United States as other banks shied away from the sector, fearing risk and the possibility of a sudden regulatory crackdown. The downfall of SVB, Signature Bank, and Silvergate Bank all within a short time has instilled fears of another 2008-like financial crisis. While policymakers continue to assure the public that they are working on a recovery plan with the Biden administration announcing measures to protect depositors, the bank run created a panic in U.S. markets. A, a, A bank run happens when the majority of depositors at a particular bank decide to withdraw their funds all at the same time. Most banks don't have all the depositors' money on hand since... Under a fractional reserve banking system, banks are only required to hold a percentage of customer deposits at any time, pausing to note that when COVID hit, that final restriction was removed. Banks don't have any holding restrictions at this time. They've never been put back in place. They don't even need 10% of $100 million in depositors. They don't need, as far as I know, they need, they literally can take your money, loan 100% of it out, 
and be completely fine legally because they are not required to hold a damn dollar against your deposit. Just, it's amazing how we've, our apathy has lit the world slip into such a bad situation. But anyway, the system has been successful for a long time. Yeah, because of apathy. (laughs) But every decade or so, a bank run happens, laying bare the banking system's vulnerabilities. These banks experienced asset liability mismatches due to higher deposits than credit during the COVID-19 pandemic. This led to banks' excess use of liquidity in public and private sector bonds. However, with rapid interest rate hikes by the United States Federal Reserve, these banks incurred enormous losses, eventually leading to a liquidity crisis. The asset-to-liability mismatch, although common in most situations for banks, was untenable in the current scenario due to the sharp decline in deposits. The crypto industry has faced much criticism in recent times owing to a slew of high-profile collapses and losses for investors. However, in the case of SVB, crypto's involvement was less causational and more due to counterparty risk on the part of the stablecoin issuer circle. Following the downfall of SVB on March the 10th, USD coin, uh, yeah, it's down to a dollar, so it's it's holding its peg so far. Issuer Circle announced that nearly $3.3 billion of the reserves backing USDC were stuck in Silicon Valley Bank. The announcement drastically affected the stablecoin, which lost its peg to the United States dollar, eventually free-falling to 87 cents. The de-pegging of USDC created a panic in the crypto industry as the stablecoin has the second largest market share and is popular among centralized and decentralized ecosystems. Read that as shit coinery. Even though Circle issued, or rather, even though Circle assured that they would compensate for the shortfall with other assets, traders and whales started to swap USDC for other stablecoins available on the market, even at a loss. One panicked trader, and I told you about this, I think on Wednesday, one panicked trader who attempted a risky and ultimately costly move uh, to exit USDC received a mere five United States pennies in tether for $2 million of USDC. Ladies and gentlemen, pausing to say, just stop, stop it, stop. You don't need to get into this shit. Just buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin. That's all you gotta do, contrastingly. Those who remained confident that USDC would eventually regain its peg started buying USDC at a lower value in hopes of making profits once the price increased back to a dollar. USDC eventually repegged to the United States dollar on March the 13th as Circle confirmed it had found a way to move its funds out of SVB. The banking crisis-induced panic in crypto markets subsided within days. In fact, Crypto flipped the narrative and proved a safe haven during the ongoing banking crisis, even when most traditional markets and financial institutions were bleeding red. While slumping slightly on March the 10th, the prices of major cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and shitcoin number one have seen a marked improvement over the last 10 days. Although shitcoin number one, i.e. Ether, uh, has, is really losing, losing fast against Bitcoin. If you got Ether, get, get out. I'll I'll give you that one. SVB Financial Group, the parent company of SVB Bank, eventually filed for bankruptcy on March the 17th in the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of, you guessed it, New York. While crypto as an asset class 
may have exited this crisis relatively unscathed, at least for now, questions remain as to the root causes of the crisis and whether it could have been avoided. Kathy Wood, the CEO of asset management firm ARK Invest, criticized regulators in the Federal Reserve for failing to stop the current bank run, saying that enforcement agencies were using cryptocurrencies as a mere scapegoat for their banking supervisory failures. I agree. Despite these criticisms, the Fed is investigating the circumstances surrounding Silicon Valley Bank's downfall with Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr recently launching a review of the situation. The report's findings are expected by May the 1st. Don't need it any quicker than that, do you? The United States Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission have also launched independent inquiries into the collapse of SVB, including reports about the sales of the bank's shares by executives just days before regulators shut it down. However, the SVB bank run is not a new phenomenon. Tony Petrov, a blockchain and fintech attorney, told Cointelegraph that the bank crisis is a man-made mess, explaining, quote, According to Boeing, approximately 80% of airplane accidents are due to human error. I think this fact, taken as a metaphor, can work for the financial industry. What we are witnessing now is the crash of the economy based on, oh God, reckless capitalism, in which compliance procedures and risk management are held in a stall in the backyard also known as a tick box exercise. I don't know what tick box exercise is other than I guess it's just tick a box so that you say that this is done. Uh, The reckless capitalism, I'm so sick of it. People, you're using the word capitalism wrong. Capitalism is me deploying capital that I possess to hopefully make a return later by building a business or writing a book or opening a goddamn burrito stand. I don't know, but I mean, think about it this way. Is money the only form of capital? No. Your network, your friends, people who know how to do shit that you don't know how to do is a form of capital. The time that you possess on this planet as somebody who can walk around and fog a mirror is a form of capital. I can have no money and a shit ton of time on my hands and build something, I don't know, like the Bitcoin and podcast, which I've yet to see a return on. I don't do it because of that. I do it because I think it's necessary, yet I am still deploying my capital, my time on this planet, being able to fog a mirror into this show so that you guys don't have to rubberneck trying to read shit while you're driving to work. I want you to get there safe so you can mine that fiat and, you know, make us all rich by buying some more Bitcoin. In either event, the point is this. Reckless capitalism is not capitalism. This is reckless cronyism. Capitalism is moral and it's ethical. Anything that, when you escape those bonds of morality and being an ethical player in any space that you're in, you're no longer in the boundaries of capitalism. You're into cronyism. You're into corruption. You're into all things bad. You can do it with communism. You can do that with socialism. Nothing is unaffected by mankind or humankind's, I'll say that, humankind's ability to be vile, short-sighted, disgusting little creatures that do wrong shit 
all the time. Stop blaming capitalism because none of this is actually about capitalism. This is about corruption and short-sightedness and greed. That's not deployment of capital for means of being able to make a return in an ethical, responsible, and moral manner. Continuing, Bradley Barnhorst, chair of the finance major and CFP program, director of DeSales University, told Cointelegraph that SVB's downfall could be attributed to improper management of the economic value of equity, a failure to protect against interest rate risk, and an abrupt decrease in deposits. He recommended that banks should adopt rigorous risk management processes and increase capital levels to protect against potential losses. Barnhorst further stated that banks need to diversify loan portfolios, be more selective with investments, and monitor and manage the risks associated with their investments to ensure that they are not overexposed to any particular sector or industry. According to a recent Stanford University study, 186 United States banks are in danger of facing a bank run because of rising interest rates and a sizable percentage of uninsured deposits. The study found that assets like treasury notes and mortgage loans may lose value when new bonds are issued with higher interest rates. Even insured depositors might experience impairments if half of the uninsured depositors abruptly withdraw their money from these 186 banks. The banks wouldn't have enough assets to reimburse all the depositors fully. Chris Barnes, managing director of the financial services division at market data analytics firm Escalant, told Cointelegraph that 2008 was the last time the banks faced a negative trust environment and 2023 could be another similar year. Barnes explained, quote, the stress test for large institutions work and are solid. It's downstream banks that they're worried about. Those banks were exempted from legislative changes in 2018. If the rules would have been in place, this wouldn't have happened. When this unfolded, there was a lot of anger in Washington, D.C. because Silicon Valley Bank pushed so hard to get off of the regulatory loop not very ironic, there, there needs to be a second type of stress test for banks below significant financial institutions. He's talking about being downstream of those banks. And that's the end of the article. All right, so here's what's happening. A lot of these banks hold treasury bonds or bills, whatever you want to call them, United States treasuries, the two-year, the 10-year, the 30-year treasury notes, okay? They hold them on their balance sheet as assets to say, look, we've got money in the form of United States treasuries. Okay, that's all well and good until what happens? Jerome Powell gets his panties tied into a little snit and decides to start raising interest rates. Why it happens is not important as what happens. I won't go into why, but here's what happens. The treasury bills or notes that you hold, that you bought 10 years ago, and you get, let's say you got a 30, you, let's, say, all right, let's say you got a whole shitload of 10-year bonds. And then Jerome Powell raises interest rates at the Fed. It's interest rates on the bonds. And what what happens is that the price that you bought that bond falls. You may be making more interest rate, 
if you buy the new ones, I guess, but your old ones, they tank. You, you, you have a loss and Silvergate sold their losses. They, the Jerome wrote, he raised the rate so fast that the bonds they were holding were all of a sudden worth like 40 to 60% less. So now they have a massive hole in their balance sheet on paper. Then to solidify and cement that loss into place, what did they do? They physically sold the bonds to somebody who would buy them. And they realized a somewhere between 40 and 60% loss of those assets. So there's this giant hole. And that's when the CEO begged for money. That's what he was stopping that, stop, trying to stop that hole up with. And he didn't get it. And Silver or Silicon Valley Bank died. It just died. Now, Silvergate and this other one, uh, I don't know if you can't remember the name. Uh, that's, those are different stories. But almost all the banking that problems that you're seeing right now is that all of them hold a shit ton of United States treasuries and Jerome Powell is devaluing all of them at once. And it ain't just United States banks that hold those treasuries. Credit Suisse holds those treasuries. The Saudi National Bank holds those treasuries. Bank of Japan, Bank of Canada. That's why all these assholes are grouping up together to backstop because nobody wants to have to sell their bonds. And Jerome Powell's going to raise rates this week by 25 bips. You see how this breaks? You see how one, once you've got a car that's going down a bumpy mountain and one of your brakes fails on like the left front tire and you really need those brakes, your right front brake is going to fail twice as fast that it would normally would have because now it's having to do the work of both left and right front brakes. And when that one fails, your drum brakes kick in on the older cars that have drum brakes and not disc brakes. Now, now two wheels have to do the work of four in braking and gravity is not changing. The force of gravity taking you down that bumpy ass hill is not changing and you're bumping around and it's causing vibrations and all of a sudden your rear brake drums fail. And you're done. And that's where we're at right now. That's exactly where we're at right now. Thank God we get to, do we get to not have to talk about banks anymore? I think so. Let's get into something else that's stupid. Fractional reserve carbon accounting is an attack on Bitcoin mining. You heard that right. Fractional reserve carbon accounting. As if stupid couldn't get more stupid, Pierre Rochard proves you wrong from Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin mining has zero carbon emissions and policies to reduce carbon emissions should be focused on real carbon emitters like airplanes and coal power plants. Focusing on zero emission consumers like electric vehicles and Bitcoin mining is unscientific. Electricity producers' carbon emissions are already accounted for as scope one direct emissions per the US EPA. Environmental Protection Agency. The only purpose of double counting emissions with scope two in direct emissions is to expand the power of government bureaucracy. Direct scope one emissions increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Indirect scope two emissions are an unscientific fiction, but it gets worse. This week, we learned that the New York Times is working on a story to introduce for the first time 
fractional reserve indirect carbon accounting or FRICA. It is expected to rebrand this as marginal indirect carbon accounting to make it a bit more palatable. We recently found out the hard way that fiat banks don't hold all of our money. They only hold a small percentage and lend out the rest, an inflationary and dubious practice known as fractional reserve banking. The New York Times upcoming FRICA methodology is the equivalent of stress testing a fractional reserve bank by withdrawing one marginal dollar and then announcing that not only is the bank solvent, but it is also 100% cash reserved. This extremely bad accounting ignores the actual balance sheet assets. The New York Times has never used this method of measuring fictitious indirect carbon emissions for any other industry. It will be leveraging it to attack Bitcoin mining. The New York Times FRICA assumes that every incremental increase in electricity consumption always increases electricity production from a natural gas power plant. The absurd conclusion of FRICA is that 100% of electricity is from carbon emitting natural gas because any single consumer of electricity could turn off and decrease marginal demand. Now in 2022, the Electric Reliability Council for Texas or ERCOT reported that the Texas grid produced roughly 40% of electricity from zero carbon nuclear, solar and wind and 60% of electricity from carbon emitting natural gas and coal. The New York Times creative accounting will deliberately hide the fact that Texas is a leader in renewable energy. Even if only 1% of electricity was produced by natural gas power plants, Frica would claim that 100% of electricity consumption is causing indirect carbon emissions. God, Jesus. The reality is that additional demand for electricity incentivizes wind and solar producers to invest more in energy infrastructure. It is unscientific to assert that increases in or in, yeah, increases in baseload demand can only incentivize short-term peaking natural gas power plants. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, Bitcoin mining is highly interruptible, meaning that it provides revenue to renewables during wait, revenue, yeah, provides revenue to renewables during normal grid conditions and turns off when non-mining demand spikes. Bitcoin mining helps avoid the use of natural gas peaker plants thanks to demand response. Now, the New York Times Frico will not just be flawed from an electricity grid perspective. <clears throat> from a Bitcoin mining perspective, it is also inaccurate to assert that turning off mining rigs in Texas would not incentivize more Bitcoin mining abroad on adversaries' dirty grids like those in Russia and Venezuela. Bitcoin is an independent global monetary system, so arbitrarily taxing proof-of-work mining in the United States would only sabotage our nation's economic competitiveness and reduce demand for renewable energy. The New York Times is expected to inflate fictitious carbon emissions for a singular political end, unfairly attacking Bitcoin mining in the United States. Simultaneously, the current presidential administration is pushing for a punitive tax on Bitcoin mining that would surrender the United States leadership position to foreign adversaries. Good journalism and good policy should reject both. Oh my God. Just when I thought stupid was stupid, something like this comes along. So what's he saying? I mean, to, to sum it up, it's basically saying that if your electricity grid, New York Times is 
fabricating this. Not, I guess they hired an economist, but this sounds to me like this isn't a regulatory body. This isn't somebody with, you know, that, that primary business is in electricity grid manufacturing and maintenance and engineering. No, these are a bunch of journalists that maybe hired an economist to come in and they're writing what? It sounds to me like they're trying to play legislator, but be that as it may, their idea is this. If your grid uses any, any carbon emitting sources to produce that energy at any percentage rate, let's say 0.00001% of all your state or your electricity grids, power is generated by a carbon emitting source such as coal or burning oil, which they don't really do anymore, or natural gas, then 100% of the electricity usage on that grid is provided by that tiny fraction of carbon emitting production. That's what this is. That's what this is. But what I find, I mean, but what I find even more stupid than the idea itself this is a story from the New York Times. Does it now go to the president's desk to be vetoed or signed into law? I'm serious. These guys are starting to act like they're running the fucking show. They're journalists. And even if they did know what they were talking about, they're journalists. They were not elected to office. They don't have a say in what goes on in the legislative, executive, or judicial branches. They're the court of public opinion, or at least part of it, that fourth pillar thing. But they're, at this point, this war, this kind of worries me, not because it's so stupid, but because they are getting too big for their britches. They're thinking, this sounds to me like what they're thinking is that this article is somehow, somehow, going to be treated as, I don't know, an international consortium of, of ecologists that get some 16-year-old autistic chick to stand in front of a camera and say, we're all going to die in five years and have that effect, have some kind of global effect beyond, over, and outside of the reach of any state actor at all. No government will be able to touch this. Everybody will do this because the New York Times says so. This is bullshit. And this is what happens when humans become very hubristic. You get too big for your britches and then you fall down. And that's when we point at you and laugh. This is just tremendous display of stupidity, except maybe for this one, project claiming to be artificially in, or artificial intelligence power uh, drains $1 million from users. Uh, Ezra Reguera, Cointelegraph tells us all about it as artificial intelligence recently became a trending topic due to the capabilities displayed by ChatGPT version four, a project claiming to be AI based decentralized application has taken almost $1 million from its users in a suspected scam. <laughs> Chain security platform Certic has recently confirmed that Harvest Keeper, oh Jesus, this is the name, this is the name of the platform, Harvest Keeper. We're going to harvest your money and we're going to keep it. They're telling you that what they're going to do in plain sight nowadays. It seems to be a meme. Anyway, Harvest Keeper has stolen around $933,000 of user assets at the time of writing. In addition, 
Users have lost around $219,000 from ICE phishing transactions across the Ethereum, BNB chain, and Polygon networks, according to Certic. The security firm urged users to revoke the permissions they gave the project and warned people to stop interacting with its website. HarvestKeeper claims to be an AI project that optimizes the trading process for maximum payout and promises a 4.81% return on user deposits. We're, we're still playing this game. Nobody's learned their lesson. People are easily scammed. Guys, stop it. D does the, does the product or service you're putting your token into promise you a yield? Then you are the yield. It's that simple. That is immediately walk away. Oh, we'll give you 2% interest. Oh, that's a low interest rate. Still walk away, walk away. On its website, the platform, check this shit out. The platform promises a 101% return on investments within 21 days and an 8% referral reward. The project has almost 30,000 followers on Twitter and more than 32,000 followers on its Telegram channel. Then they start talking about chat GPT again as a technology. We don't need to get into it. So what happened? Well, some guys figured out that AI and chat GPT is, they're capturing the imagination of venture capitalists, which are gonna have to put their cash into something after all this bullshit, right? So now it's, it's not, they're not interested in tokens anymore. They're not interested in Bitcoin anymore. They're interested in AI. AI is going to be the thing. Well, when that kind of hype hits and it starts to get amplified by the people themselves, the ultimate inevitability is always the same. Somebody gins up something that says it's AI power. It's, it's the current thing powered. Give your money to us. We'll give you yield and then they rug pull. It's the same thing. You just got to replace current thing in that sentence with AI powered or blockchain powered or something else powered. It sounds cool. It's slick. None of, I guarantee you none of these people have looked beyond this website's claims to see if this shit actually exists. They're just going to keep taking money. It's going to be People are just going to get robbed and robbed again and robbed again. And at one point, maybe they'll stop because, but they'll, my fear is they'll stop because they've literally got robbed of all their money, all their assets, and they've gone into debt to be able to get robbed some more. Guys, if it offers a yield, stay away from it because that yield is you. Redeem. Oh God, redeemgbtc.com is hosting a shareholders meetup at Miami Bitcoin conference this year. BTC Casey from Bitcoin Magazine tells us about the down and the dirty of the fallout of the whole DCG, GBTC, the grayscale stuff. All, apparently people are pissed. And the redeemgbtc.com campaign, which is a grassroots movement to address the dissatisfaction many Grayscale shareholders have expressed in the management of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has announced a pivotal shareholders meeting at Bitcoin 2023. The trust, now trading at an approximate 40% discount, has created a situation that calls for immediate action and has led to the organization of the GBTC shareholders meetup by redeemgbtc.com. The goal of the meetup in Miami is to provide these concerned investors with a venue to convene 
for discussions in regards to the future of the trust. Sounds like a great big old pity party to me. Redeem GBTC also announced that it is accepting proposals from companies interested in becoming the next sponsor for the trust. Scam. <clears throat> proposals will be reviewed by the organizers and selected companies will have the opportunity to present their ideas at the GBTC shareholders meetup, the announcement says. Shareholders will have the chance to engage with these companies, evaluate their propositions, and provide feedback. According to the announcement, more than 30% of the GBTC shareholders are anticipated to be in attendance, making it a formidable gathering of collective investors. Then why do you need a fucking sponsor? Additional information on the GBTC shareholders meetup, registration for the meetup, and a submission portal for sponsorship proposals are available on the Bitcoin 2023 Industry Day page, and they give a website, and it is b.tc forward slash conference forward slash industry hyphen day, if you want to get into this shit. You know what this sounds like? It sounds like what I've just covered. We represent the current thing, and we're going to produce a yield. Walk away. The current thing here is GBTC. They're going to fix it. No, they're not. But they sure as shit can get a sponsor for it. Why do they need a sponsor? Uh, you know, I call bullshit. I call grift. Whoever, I think whoever set this up doesn't give a shit. Doesn't give a shit. I think they're trying to get money and on the backs of a concern concerned about the current thing, well then join us because we're concerned about too, about it too. Yeah, I don't see this going anywhere. And finally, new emails show that FTX met with the FDIC months before its collapse. Tim Hockey tells us about a report that Decrypt.co has a series of emails obtained by Protect the Public's Trust and shared with the Washington Examiner show that the now defunct FTX attempted to curry favor with the FDIC by arranging a first meeting with the regulator's chairman just a few months before the exchanges collapse. Protect the Public's Trust is a watchdog that educates the public largely through investigative research about potential misconduct by United States government officials. FTX.us's head of policy at the time of the correspondence Mark Wetgen, who had previously served as commissioner for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission under Obama, emailed FDIC Chairman Martin Gruenberg on behalf of Sam Bankman-Fried to pitch the exchange and schedule a meeting between the three. Quote, we are in the unusual position of begging the federal government to regulate us, wrote Wetgen who also claimed that he strongly believed that the FTX risk model is all things considered a superior model. This dude worked at FTC at, at the futures commodity, what the futures, God, CFTC, the futures commodity futures trading commission thought that he strongly believed that the FTX risk model was superior. The level of stupidity that's present in Present day, ladies and gentlemen, is indeed eye-watering. Elsewhere in the email, Wetgen argues, quote, the single best thing the United States government can do to mitigate the risks of crypto is to regulate the exchanges as they are the gatekeepers for the crypto's ecosystem. Now, later that same evening, Grudenberg replied, I'd be glad to meet with you and then CEO Mr. Bankman-Fried, end quote. 
A spokesperson from the FDIC confirmed that the, to the Washington Examiner that Gruenberg and FTX did have a single meeting in the end. The FDIC's senior media relations officer, Julianne Brightbale, told Decrypt that chairman of the FDIC have routine courtesy visits with leaders of financial firms and institutions. FTX did not immediately respond to, uh, yeah, to this bullshit. And why would they? And I'm not even going to read the rest of it because it's like, that's, it's, everybody's in the same bed together. It's like a giant whorehouse with multiple rooms and the whole thing is like the legislative branch of the United States government, the media of the United States. It's like they're all whoring each other out to each other in a giant whore hotel. And you get what we're seeing here. See, this is, this is what I was expecting. <clears throat> I told you about the hurricane that started with that whole, what, not Tron, what am I thinking of? Duquan and Terra Luna. That was the headwinds of the hurricane as it was making landfall. And it ripped through retail and all of crypto. And then we had the eye, we had the calm that is the eye of the hurricane storm where you actually, there's actually sunlight and it's like cloudless, except off in the distance, you see the eye wall circulating around you, which should freak you out because you know what happens next. The second part of the hurricane hits, this is it. This is the, this, we are in the deep part of the second part of the hurricane. And we still got a ways to go before this son of a bitch breaks up over land. Be very careful over the next year, not months, not weeks. 2023 is going to be just as much of a shit show as 2022, 2021, 2020, and the last quarter of 2019. It's been nothing but a dumpster fire. It does not get extinguished this year. It gets worse this year. What does 2024 hold? I, I don't know. I'm just going to buy Bitcoin and hold Bitcoin. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. We need a joke more than ever. What do you call an angry doctor? A therapist. Uh-huh. Lots of people are pissed. Lots of people are pissed. There and lots more people are going to become pissed. So here's some real actionable advice during these times. You're on the road in, the, in your car. This is one. You're on the road in your car. Somebody cuts your ass off. You might want to let it go. You might seriously consider lit, lit, just let that shit go. I'm not being a pacifist. I'm saying the following. You don't know what's going on inside of the head of the guy in the car that just cut you off. Think about that. What if he just figured out that his third mortgage uh, that he took out on his family's home and he's got five kids and a wife that don't know that he's even taken out a second mortgage yet has lost it all yet again on a rug pull because he thought he was going to get yield on whatever current thing was in play in crypto land. You think crawling into his shit might not make him snap? 
That's what I mean by be careful this next year. Same thing when you're out in public and you're not even in a car, you're at a grocery store and somebody's got their, their grocery cart right, not only in the middle of the aisle, but turned at an angle so that you can't even walk around it. This drives me up the wall. You know what I'm going to do? If I got to get to the other end of the aisle, I'm just going to turn around, walk down the other aisle and go around the backside. Because at this point, I don't know who's losing their house, whether it's in crypto or TradFi. I don't know what's going on inside the head of anybody that I see. And I don't think anybody else should either. I think we should have a majority when it comes to other human beings to assume that they're having a bad fucking day and just leave them alone. Even if they do stupid, now if they, if they come out and physically attack you, like they're trying to carjack you or rob you, yeah, shoot them in the head, do whatever it is that you gotta do to defend yourself. That's fine. But if it's just some dude walking down the sidewalk and he bumps into you, you know, getting into his shit is probably at this time, any other time probably would have been fine. Like, I don't know, five years after 2008, had kind of dissipated and got out in the wind to twist and all that kind of shit. Maybe then you could turn around and say, dude, what the fuck? And want a confrontation. Issuing a confrontational attitude at this point could very well be dangerous because the storm isn't over. I just told you that. We, they put $50 billion of Swiss or 50 billion Swiss francs worth of liquidity into Credit Suisse and it was all gone in like seven hours. And they had to sell to UBS for 3 billion. Well, yeah, for 3 billion, I think it was actually Swiss francs, not 3 billion United States dollars. It was all gone. I mean, that thing, you know, four weeks ago, if you told anybody in finance that four weeks ago that Credit Suisse would sell for 3 billion Swiss francs, you'd have been laughed out of the room. Except for the one guy who knew what was really going on, probably would go, yeah, you're probably right. <clears throat> what did credit, you know, what assets did they have? I mean, are, are, are the Swiss people that were banking with Credit Suisse, are they going to be made whole? People that were international, did they have enough money that they're not going to be able to get back out of Credit Suisse? Uh, that they are unable for whatever reason, the repercussions are that they can't service their mortgage anymore. And think about this one. As interest rates rise and all this shit's going on because that's what's really caused it. This is all, God, I don't want to say it. Jerome Powell is backed into a corner, but yet this is still all his fault because the only tool, the only lever that he can pull right now is interest rates. That's the last lever that actually still has, you know, th that's still on its hinge that he can still pull everything else. He can't pull anything, but this one fucking lever and it's caused all this. Okay. Now housing, the housing market is basically in a stall, right? You got interest rates going up, but house prices aren't going down to compensate for that because they should, but that's what happens with housing. It's so illiquid that the housing prices remain sticky because you've got two people. You got people that can't buy a house and you've got people that don't want to sell their house because they've got a 2.5% mortgage for 30 years. 
in an environment where they're about to go up to 6.5 to 6.75%. There's almost no real inventory. And especially in big, inside big cities, which you don't want to be in the first place, there's like nothing. It's, it's ridiculous. And what's there for sale is untenable at the prices. So think about this. Eventually what will happen is that housing prices will plummet at one point. Do I know when? No, I do not. But I know what the aftermath will be. You're, you might say, well, of course it means I can buy a house. Yes. You'd probably be able to pick up a house for fucking cheap. Really cheap. I don't know exactly how cheap. And I mean, so cheap that the 6.5, 6.7% interest is like having a, the same, you'd have the same monthly payment on a much more expensive house at 2.5. If you can service the monthly mortgage cost, including mortgage insurance, if you have it, your how you know, the property taxes are folded into that, your, you know, house insurance, the, the insurance that you have on the house in case it burns down, all that shit's folded in. And if you can still, if you can pull off getting a house cheap enough that at 6.75, you're paying the same amount as your other house that was much more expensive, same size at a 2.5% rate, then you, that it doesn't matter to you. But here's what it, where it does matter. Those housing prices have inflated what? Municipals, tax, revenue base. So Chicago, New York City, LA, San Francisco, think of all the big cities. When those housing prices fall, they're not going to be able to raise property taxes fast enough to compensate. And now you're going to see whole cities go bankrupt. Yes, I know what you're saying. They're already bankrupt. Yeah, but it's not evident. It's evident to me and you because we talk about all this shit now, but to the, to the normie walking around on the street, no, it is not evident to them. And you're going to see flights out of the city like you've never seen before. And I've been telling you to get out, get out, get out, get out. And other people have been telling you on their podcast, if you can get out of the city, get the hell out of the city. That window's closing. The window is starting to close. If you've got cash, you might consider, of course, everybody wants to buy Bitcoin. I get that. But I also need to be fairly rational about this shit too. Maybe, just maybe, this is the time to look for a house out in the country and have cash to be able to put a massive down payment on it and continue to DCA into Bitcoin. That's all I got time for today. I love you all. Good night and Pura Vida. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.